0: Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today, talking about death. How can we better prepare patients and their families facing serious illness and also help ourselves?
1: I'm Carol Michael. My husband died at 61 of colon cancer. Michael wasn't feeling well for a month or so and went to see his primary care physician who did a couple of tests and then it was actually New Year's Eve day that we received results from our primary care physician who called us and said these tests are showing that there are metastases in the liver and we need to start treatment as soon as possible. It's certainly possible that we had a bigger conversation about colon cancer. It's hard for me to remember whether it was with him or it was with our oncologist, but certainly we were given at some point early on parameters of longevity, because I think that was the question. What I remember was it was you you could have two years or you could have 17 years. There was an enormous spread. I called all the people that I knew that knew anything about cancer or colon cancer and asked what questions should I be asking. And so we didn't really have a context about how long, what the possibilities were, what we should do. But we were immediately in the hospital, in a treatment room, getting a port put in. The focus was on getting this treated. So there was a a, a piece that was completely missing, but I don't know that we even knew it was missing. It would have really been helpful to have put this diagnosis and treatment into context where we could begin to think about what was important to us. We were just moving from one course of treatment to the next, and we finished the third round of chemo and the scans showed that Michael's tumor wasn't responding. Because Michael was focused on his quality of life and writing a play during that time, he determined radiation wasn't going to make any difference. And there were no clinical trials that were actually going to target his cancer. And so we chose And I would say, in quotes, nothing. We left the infusion and the cancer center and went home. And it felt like we fell off a cliff. And then when Michael began to really not do well physically, we came back in and I said to our oncologist, I think i want to talk to somebody in palliative care and he said you're fine you don't need anyone you're not in crisis you're fine and i insisted at that point because i kind of felt like there was maybe someone out there who could talk to us about really truly what was happening and we did have a meeting with a wonderful palliative care doctor but michael got sicker so quickly that we weren't able to have the kinds of real conversations that we would have had had we seen her earlier, so that it wouldn't have been such a crisis. The fact that we didn't have the opportunity to have those conversations before was really a terrible loss. These have to be more than one conversation right at the end of someone's life. They are conversations that are about healing. Even if you can't fix or cure something, they are conversations where your physician is assessing whether you understand what is ahead of you and the right decisions around one's treatment. These are conversations that are so life-affirming, that are so helpful in terms of a family making decisions to really ensure quality of life and what it means to be facing your own mortality or the mortality of your loved one.
0: This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. We're now joined by Dr. Vicki Jackson. She's Chief of Palliative Care at Massachusetts General Hospital. And also Dr. Nekka Uferay. She's a transplant hepatologist at MGH. So Dr. Jackson, I'd like to start with you. You're a palliative care physician, and you saw the need to make sure that all clinicians have some palliative care
2: skills. Why? So. Patients see many clinicians over the course of care. They may see clinicians in the emergency department. They may see clinicians who are inpatient hospitalist physicians. They may see a hepatologist or oncologist. And a palliative care clinician is just one part of that team. So although we have special expertise because of our training in this, it's really important that these kinds of conversations are the responsibility of all of us as clinicians caring for patients with serious illness. So what do we
0: currently have in terms of advanced care planning and why isn't that enough?
2: So advanced care planning is understood in a variety of different ways. Some people think about advanced care planning as actually a document like a healthcare proxy, which it is indeed very important that our patients have assigned someone to be able to make decisions for them in the event that they're not able to. However, Advanced care planning documents are only as good as the conversations that accompany those documents. So what is really important is that we allow patients an opportunity to understand what's happening with their illness, integrate that both emotionally and cognitively over time. So that informs their goals and values, what medical decisions they make, how they live their life. We think much more about the importance of the conversation and the conversation may result in documents, but without the conversation, it's very hard for patients and families and clinicians to be able to take those decisions and apply them to a new situation that might not have been discussed.
0: So Dr. Uferay, you work with patients with advanced liver disease who need transplant. Did your training when you were coming up As a doctor, address how to handle end-of-life care planning with patients?
3: So in residency, I did receive serious illness communication training through our palliative care division, but that was the last time that I received that training. And so after residency, I went through general GI fellowship and then transplant hepatology fellowship without having those skills applied to the care of the patients that I would be taking care of for the rest of my life. And I found that to be a really big gap because I'm taking care of patients who are facing both the hope of transplant as well as the fear and the worry of death in the context of having a very serious life limiting disease. And lacking those skills to be able to navigate those conversations and really guide patients on a pathway that has a lot of uncertainty really caused me a lot of distress as I was going through my training as a gastroenterologist and a transplant hepatologist. And do you think patients and their families suffered because of the lack of training? The default when you don't feel comfortable with having those conversations, the default is to avoid those conversations. And so when I talk with patients and talk with their families, we can have our entire conversation focus on transplants, but that doesn't focus at all on what if we're not able to get to transplants. And oftentimes those what ifs never get addressed until it's too late. And what do you mean too late? Can you expand on that? So for example, in taking care of patients with advanced liver disease, they have to get in many cases, sicker and sicker and sicker before they're able to get a new offer of life, i.e. an organ transplant, a liver transplant. And so as these patients are getting sicker, they're getting closer to a life-saving organ, but they're also getting closer to potentially dying. But in the absence of having conversations about what if you're not able to get to trans What if something happens? You get too sick, you have a new infection, you have new internal bleeding. We haven't adequately prepared patients and families for what would my life look like? What would my death look like? And so I worry that delaying those conversations denies patients and families the choice how they would die if they had the opportunity to think about that in advance.
0: So Dr. Jackson, what do clinicians need to understand here?
2: So what we advise is that clinicians not only have training in the communication skills to effectively make a prognostic disclosure, but that they also understand the psychological adaptation and coping that is required of patients with serious illness. We shouldn't be surprised that we have to have another conversation with the patient. This is a multitude of conversations over time, and that should be what's expected rather than us questioning, why doesn't the patient get it? Why don't they understand? It is difficult to come to terms with one's mortality. And part of the skills we have to help clinicians build is how do we support patients in integrating this information over time as they're making sense of their illness trajectory?
0: So, Dr. Oufere, you went through what's known as the continuum training at MGH. This helps clinicians of all kinds develop these communication skills, these palliative care skills around serious illness. How did that training change your approach?
3: I would just say that going through this training completely changed the way that I deliver care to my patients with liver disease. And I think for me, the most critical aspect is making sure my patients and their families understand their illness. Before I get into prognostic disclosure Because I really fundamentally feel after having gone through Continuum that having conversations focused on prognosis and breaking bad news that are not on a solid foundation of illness understanding can create a lot of emotional distress. So if my patient doesn't understand the unpredictability of liver failure symptoms, and if they're coming into a situation where they're not able to be a liver transplant candidate, that news can really shake the foundation of a patient and a family that has no understanding of what cirrhosis is and what it's doing to them and to their family.
0: So can you give us an example of how you may have handled something before the continuum training and after?
3: One example would be an outpatient of mine who was in her late 60s, And she had not known that she had cirrhosis until she suddenly developed ascites and presented to the hospital and then presented to my clinic. And when I first met her, she came in with a very worried sister. And before taking the Continuums project, what I would have done is really have the immediate focus be on, let's talk about your prognosis moving forward or in the context of this woman who was also possibly a liver transplant candidate, I wouldn't have had any conversations about preparing her for the possibility of what life could look like in the absence of transplants at all. And so my entire focus during that initial clinic visit would have been on the transplant evaluation. And what I learned through Continuum was the initial focus was on describing liver disease in a way that patients can understand, describing the complications of liver disease and preparing them for the inherent and deep unpredictability of being a person living with advanced liver disease, as well as a family member who has to take care of that loved one. And I think that their understanding and preparation for the fact that we can't see what the future will hold and that person can get very sick very quickly allowed them to better understand and prepare themselves in many ways when they went back home after that clinic visit for preparing documents so that they can start to make decisions and disclose with their family about that.
0: So what happened after the initial visit and your initial conversation with this
3: patient? So on subsequent clinic visits and as she got sicker and sicker, Then we started to have a lot of conversations about prognosis. This was someone I was working up for liver transplantation, but she suddenly developed a form of ascites that we call refractory ascites. And so every week she would have to go to an outpatient urgent care center and get fluid drained from her abdomen. She was getting progressively more frail. And then she had a sudden hospitalization. And I remember going to meet her in the hospital and she looked at me and she said, we've been talking about the fact that I'm going to get sicker and sicker and I'm I'm ready for whatever's coming. And so we just had a long conversation and her sister was a part of it. And I told her, I don't know where you're going to go. I don't know if tomorrow you're going to get a liver transplant or tomorrow you're gonna get sicker and we may not have you here. And she felt prepared for either of those possibilities. And luckily she was able to get to liver transplantation, but I wouldn't have had the words or the skills to be able to navigate that as a clinician had I not gone through Continuum. I would have just focused on the hope and not preparing for all of the what-ifs. So Dr. Jackson, what are some of the principles
0: you're teaching In this continuum training around this kind of communication,
2: we're wanting clinicians to be able to think about this as a process over time and that we're partnering with the patient to have that deeper understanding of the likely illness trajectory. And so we train clinicians to ask open ended questions like, What is your understanding of your illness? What are you worried about? When you think ahead, If your illness were to get worse, what would be most important to you? The other thing that's really important in this teaching is that as patients begin to have a deeper understanding of their illness, emotions are a natural part of that. So part of what clinicians need to become comfortable with is how do we recognize that emotion and how do we respond to that emotion? It's not uncommon that clinicians who've not been trained in these kinds of communication strategies think, If the patient cries or gets angry, I've done something wrong. And one of the things I often tell people learning these skills is uncouple your self-evaluation from the patient's emotional response. And then once we understand what's important to the patient, how do we make a recommendation about care? But we don't know what to recommend if we haven't been able to partner with patients so they understand what the uncertainty is, what the possibilities are, and the likely on this trajectory. So a big part of
0: this program, this possible change of healthcare delivery that you're doing here, is about the medical record. Talk to us about what happens here with the medical record and
3: what the impact is and why it matters. So one of the tools we have in our electronic health record is a template for a serious illness conversation. And I use that far more than documenting a code status, for example, because in the context of liver disease and, and transplants, patients can really flip in terms of how sick they can get and then how well they can get. And I sometimes worry that static documents are not able to highlight the changes that they can have in their trajectory. Whereas a serious illness conversation notes is not focused on, I want or don't want a procedure, check, 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 XXX. Instead, the electronic health record, as we're using it as clinicians, should really lean into how much does a patient know about their illness, how much do they understand about their prognosis, and what are their goals and values, and probably lean away from advanced directives and checklists that oftentimes are put into the electronic health record as if they're set in stone.
0: So what's been the impact of having these conversations, these serial conversations Put in the electronic health record. And how have you seen that change business as usual?
2: One thing that we know is a number of clinicians in a patient's care team may be having these conversations, but each clinician is unaware of conversations that another clinician may be having. You know, this happens frequently, say, with our patients with a cancer diagnosis. The oncologist may be having these conversations, but if there is not a way that the primary care doctor can see what was said or the hospital medicine doctor or the emergency room doctor, it is really difficult to know where they're starting. So what we find is that documentation of these conversations allows the clinician who is now seeing that patient to kind of pick up the baton and say, I see that you had a conversation with Dr. Jones about the fact that this chemotherapy is no longer working for your cancer, and Dr. Jones is quite worried about your cancer and that it may get much worse. If that is in the record, along with how the patient responded to that information, how they're coping with that information, when a clinician who's never met that patient before sees them, they're able to more seamlessly pick up that conversation and continue to carry that down the path with this patient. It's not uncommon that many of our patients can see 10 different clinicians during the course of a hospitalization. And if each one of those clinicians is able to be grounded in where the conversation has been, we all have a similar starting place.
0: So Dr. Euferi, what kinds of changes have you seen in your colleagues who have also had this continuum training?
3: There has been a bigger focus on the holistic care needs of our patients. I believe that this shared framework has allowed me to work closely with colleagues in other disciplines to build bridges with each other, whereas we had previously been very isolated in our silos, focused on our own organs. But now a patient and a family know that they're being taken care of by a team that is caring about their needs completely. Dr. Jackson, what kinds of changes, cultural changes, have you
0: seen and what do you hope for here?
2: There have been several changes that I have noticed. The importance of every clinician on the team, whether it's the nurse or the social worker or the hospitalist or the oncologist, seeing these conversations with patients and families as part of their job and as their role. Because we need to make sure that the patient and family voice are at the center of everything we do. Also, in our very fragmented medical system, where so many clinicians in multiple systems care for patients, if we're able to actually build on each other's conversations and have that accessible to the clinicians, we'll be in a place where we will actually be making recommendations for clinical care that match what's important to the patient and family. Thank
0: you both so very much. Thank you, Rachel, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Rachel. That's Dr. Nekka Ufere. She's a transplant hepatologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, and also Dr. Vicki Jackson. She's Chief of Palliative Care at MGH. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. We had help from our managing editor, Deborah Molina. Our engineer is Mike Toda.